This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Emmanuel, thanks very much for coming back on uh, on Talk Your Book. You were a big hit last time, so thanks very much for uh, giving us your time. No worries, Chris. Always a pleasure. Our, uh, we spoke a little bit about uh, that group, but maybe for those people that weren't watching or, or listening to the, the last talk your book did, maybe if you could give us a, a, a brief outline of, of DAT Group and, and how you guys look to invest. Yeah, sure. So um, I run DAT Capital and uh, we run a growth-orientated fund. Uh, we've done really well over the past 12 months. We've achieved uh, a bit over um, 30% in, in terms of our 12-month rolling return. And uh, yeah, always on the hunt for great opportunities and you've got an under-the-radar listed investment today. What stock do you want to talk about today for us? Uh, today, I'd like to talk about Dusk Group, who are a specialist retailer operating at this point solely in the Australian market. Um, Dusk is best known, I guess, to locals for scented candles, although they do sell a lot of other stuff like diffusers, essential oils, and other sort of fragrance-related homewares. Yeah, it's the biggest player in the local market. So it holds about 22% market share and it runs about uh, 120-odd physical stores. Yeah, And talk us through a bit about their history. It's got some pretty uh, well-recognised either founders or, or early shareholders. Where was, it, where was it born out of? Yeah, so Dusk was um, first incorporated in the uh, mid-'90s and uh, yeah, over, this, over the time it's sort of been built up slowly. Um, it's been brought to the market by a private equity uh, firm called Catalyst, who are very uh, strong and well-known in the retail industry, along with BBRC, which is the private vehicle of Aussie retail legend Brett Blundy. Uh, these two firms, they've got a huge you know, range of really well-known uh, retail brands that they've backed and uh, developed over time. So these include uh, you know, big brands like um, Ardez, La Visa, Bras and Things, Pacific Brands, Just Jeans, along with many others. And um, yeah, so we think that uh, yeah, all these brands that they brought to market have done very well over time for all shareholders. If you're looking for a heuristic, having a, a look at a company that Brett Blundy's been involved in is a, a pretty good shortcut to, to often finding some, uh, some value in the, the retail side of the market. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, retail is uh, a very specialised industry. You know, you, you can even see um, other players like Solomon Liu, for example, who's done incredibly well in the retail space. And, um, you know, um, some uh, management teams and operators just have such an eye <laughs> for, for really um, great value propositions in, in this industry. And Catalyst and Brett Blundy are definitely of that calibre. And so we'll get into the numbers in a second, but I think from a top-down view, one of the, you know, they had huge growth last year, but as did so many retailers that were selling a, a product, generally businesses yeah. that were selling services found it really challenging in that, that stay-at-home COVID environment, yeah. um, or certain services anyway. But yeah. companies that had products to sell generally flourished. How have you sort of weighted the, the last 12 months in the hopefully strange environment we've had that, that hopefully won't continue uh, for eternity versus business as usual. How have you sort of worked through that in your own mind? 
Well, I think, you know, with the COVID sort of shutdowns, I think it's really forced people to evaluate their living spaces. And I think the benefit with Dusk is that, uh, yeah, Dusk really benefits from that. People, if they're sitting at home, if they're working from home, they want their home environment to be as attractive and as enticing as possible. And um, yeah, I think Dusk will benefit, uh, continue to benefit from that going forward. Um, I think, uh, you know, one common, um, uh, what would you call it, um, question that's put to us is, like, oh, what separates Dusk from buying a, um, yeah, a candle from Kmart or Ikea? And I think it's all about quality. You know, Dusk, are basically, they're selling an affordable luxury. You know, I think to myself, yeah, would I rather receive a scented candle from Kmart as a gift for a friend or, you know, a Dusk candle? So, you know, I think the answer is pretty self-evident <laughs> when, you, when you think about it. And, um, yeah, so I, I think that Dusk is selling affordable luxury, but it's also enhancing a person's living space and a sense of well-being uh, by extension. And talk to me through their numbers. Talk to me about their market cap, their, their cash on their balance sheet and, and maybe their EBIT numbers to start with. Yeah, sure. So at the moment, their, their market cap is about 160 mil as of today. Um, they've guided to having a cash balance of over 33 million um, as of uh, the first half of this financial year. Uh, in terms of their uh, guidance for the first half, they've guided to about 90 million in revenue and earnings before interest and tax of 26 million uh, at the bottom range. So, um, you know, we, we think that for this financial year, they'll probably hit a revenue figure of about 155 mil. And we think that uh, an EBIT figure of 33 mil uh, wouldn't be too far off the mark. It does look very cheap, doesn't it? In the current, current climate, maybe I saw the note you did recently on on Dusk, which was uh, which was excellent, which we might try and post for um, for listeners and viewers of this. But maybe talk yeah. through some of the comparables to some of the other retailers at the minute. Maybe on an, an EV EBIT multiple in yeah. uh, where Dusk sits in that uh, that company. Yeah, sure. So um, Dusk at the moment, it's sort of it's trading at say about four times EBIT multiple. Uh, EBIT multiple is just basically a multiple of the earnings before interest and tax. So it's a, it's a metric that's common used, uh, commonly used within private equity, for example, and private equity funds typically would look to acquire companies at an even multiple of you know, between five and seven. So uh, for a public market asset that's trading at four, four times EBIT, it's extraordinarily cheap. Um, so looking through you know, its uh, retail sector comparables, you know, the multiples range between uh, the high 30s uh, down all the way down to, say, eight times. So even if we're using the you know, bottommost range of eight times, uh, we think that it's worth at least about $4.20, which is, you know, minimum 60% upside, uh, as is, you know, <laughs> as, as of today. So it looks to us to be a very compelling and undervalued opportunity. And they've got a pretty aggressive store rollout strategy. I think by 2024, they want to have 160 physical stores. Yeah. Are you supportive of that sort of a rollout strategy for a retailer in the, the new world? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the beauty about Dusk is uh, it's omni-channel, meaning that there are many channels. So um, I think if you're selling physical-centred homewares, people are always after that tactile 
experience. They want to smell, touch, feel the product and uh, you know, think about how it makes them feel. You know, so I think that is basically the first step in any customer acquisition strategy. And uh, you know, I think the business have done really well by encouraging customers to um, get into a loyalty program. Uh, a two-year membership only costs 10 bucks, but you get a $10 welcome voucher, which you have to use within 30 days, but you get discounted uh, items as, as well as birthday discounts and discounted shipping for any online order. So it's a very strong value proposition. And uh, you know the loyalty program has grown to half a million members. And um, you know, these, on, these members basically, there's a skew towards online ordering, which is much higher margin. So I'm um, sorry, just getting back to the physical store aspect of it. Um, you know, we've worked out that the physical stores do almost $1 million in revenue on average. You know, we, I look at this and, and um, I compare it to someone like LaVisa, who's doing only half a million dollars per store. So I think that in terms of um, the company themselves, I think there's no doubt that stores are a great success. You know, they've got really excellent leverage to the real estate cycle at the moment where, you know, you have shopping malls, a lot of tenants are going out of business or not renewing leases. So um, landlord incentives, lower rents, you know, um, currently the model has a new store payback of less than 12 months. And uh, most importantly, every single store in the network is profitable, which is uh, extraordinary for a, a large retail chain, we think. And the, the weighted average lease expiry of 2.4 years gives them plenty of flexibility with, with their store proposition. Do you want to maybe walk through why that's important that their, yeah. their average lease expiry is relatively short? Yeah, sure. No worries. So um, weighted average lease expiry is just effectively an average of uh, uh, the lease expiry within the um, store network itself. So uh, in a retailer, we typically see about five to six years um, uh, whale, they call call it whale. And um, yeah, so effectively a shorter expiry date means that um, you know, more stores will have to be renewed in terms of letting. So basically the, the company can take advantage of the current distress in the commercial real estate market, as opposed to trying to tear up old leases and renegotiate with landlords. That's what it comes down to ultimately. And they've, their online sales have been growing strongly as well. You mentioned that they're an omni-channel retailer. Maybe talk through some of the numbers there and, and how you feel that customer acquisition strategy is going online. Yeah, sure. So um, as, as I mentioned before, the loyalty program probably has a lot to do with that. Uh, it's been growing very strongly. I think uh, it's been growing at about 20 to 25% year on year since um, uh, 2016. And um, at the moment, the, the group do about maybe about 10% of, of the group revenue comes from the online channel. Um, one interesting thing we found about online is that a lot of the web traffic is actually coming from the US and UK markets where the dust product is not even available. So to us, um, that represents a really low risk opportunity to um, uh, expand geographically into international markets. And um, yeah, uh, I, I think that um, it, it's something that is very promising and that the company have definitely flagged uh, about uh, you know, uh, starting international beachheads, they call it. So uh, I think no doubt that you know, international 
uh, ordering is much higher margin than in-store. But, um, you know, I, I don't expect the company to rush into anything or, or behave in a rash manner in terms of expanding their physical store network. But I think uh, international expansion by online is, is the um, most practical method of doing things. And talk to me about their dividends. They're, they're going to have some pretty juicy cash flows. They already do. What sort of forecast have you got for the dividends in the next 12 months? Yeah, sure. So the company have guided to a 60 to 80% payout ratio of earnings. So if, we're, if we assume uh, an EBIT um, bigger of 33 million, we'd um, basically um, expect you know, somewhere between 20 and 25 million in uh, distributable income effectively. So, um, you know, uh, that equates, there are about 63 million shares on offer. So, you know, that, that equates to about, you know, 30 to 50 cents odd, I think just off the top of my head. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it looks like a very uh, attractive potential um, dividend that will be coming up. Um, they've guided that, you know, they'll split the dividend sort of 50-50 between the halves. So we could expect semi-annual uh, dividends from here on forth. And with a good pile of cash sitting on that balance sheet, could you see the potential for bolt-on acquisitions or do you think that'll really be used for the, the store rollout program? Uh, I think it'll be a store rollout program, personally speaking. Um, I think that they've really got no competitors in the space. I think that's the most important or one really important factor, you know, um, homewares itself, it's pretty much a cottage industry. You know, the competitors are more mums and dads and very small competitors. And um, yeah, I, I think that is a huge advantage because, uh, you know, the company have uh, a vertical supply chain. So they basically design the product in-house, they contract manufacture uh, uh, via their suppliers. And um, that makes it very capital efficient. Uh, uh, for the company to operate. And um, so any, we, we sort of expect any sort of surplus cash generated or you know, even the cash on balance sheet, they'll invest into international expansion. And uh, I think the public markets um, will really like the story if and when they announce it going forward. And so why isn't it uh, trading at a higher value? You know, it, it stacks up incredibly cheap compared to its competitors, uh, appears to have an economic moat, got a really clean, healthy balance sheet. What's holding it back, do you think? Yeah, I think what's holding it back is that it's a very recent IPO. It was only floated late last year. And also there's a perception that it was a sell down by uh, the private equity firm um, yeah, and the holders, um, because effectively in the IPO, uh, they didn't raise any new cash. And why would you if you're already profitable and mm. yeah, very well capitalized? That's what I asked myself. And, you know, to our minds, that's mitigated because Catalyst, the private equity firm, retained 25%. BBRC uh, retains uh, about 8%. And the management team didn't sell any, down any shares uh, into the public offering itself. I think one other factor is that uh, their, their big upgrade that came about, they released between Christmas and New Year when everyone's on holidays. So, um, you know, the pros really weren't aware of this. Um, yeah, I, I assume most fund managers would have just come back um, from holidays around now. And um, uh, one other fact I'd say is because given it's such a recent listing, uh, a lot of the financial metrics probably haven't hit the institutional platforms like Bloomberg and CapIQ, et cetera. So, um, and 
also, you know, the big um, elephant in the room is also that JobKeeper has, you know, helped. That's the perception. And, um, and I'd say it has helped, but I would say that lockdowns have helped even more. Um, you know, for, for the reasons I mentioned before, it's really caused people to focus on their home environment. And uh, I guess one point I'd like to mention about that is that the products they sell are consumables as opposed yeah. to selling furniture or things that don't have a replacement cycle necessarily attached to them. Once you burn a candle, it's gone. And um, you probably want to maintain that sort of consistency once you're, uh, yeah, if you enjoyed the experience and, or you've taken the time to actually use the product itself, then uh, I think that you'd generally go back and buy another one. I was thinking about that. They're consumables, but they also don't go off like food does or, or like yeah. lots of food does. And they also, I'm guessing here, perhaps don't go out of fashion like a, a line of clothing does each season. So potentially there's a lot less waste or potential for discounting than there is in fast fashion where trends change so quickly or, or, you know, food that has a, an element of perishability to it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree entirely. Um, I do know they, they're always on top of trends. Yeah. I mentioned the in-house design team uh, briefly and um you know, we think that, um, you know, just the product offering is just so attractive. You know, you look at um, a beautiful label, beautiful box. So it's really, uh, it's a really nice gift to, uh, give to someone as well. You know, um, if you're visiting someone's house, it's very nice to bring a small token. So instead of a box of chocolate, some people might take a candle and, um, you know, that they find uh, personally uh, appealing. So, I can see a lot of your friends getting a lot of free candles over the next uh, next couple of years. And oh, they, yeah, they know what to expect. <laughs> we've, uh, we've, we've painted a really positive picture about it. Talk to me about just some of the risks before we finish up. What are, what are you going to be looking out for to uh, to give you some clues that maybe the investment isn't as good as, as what you think it is? Yeah, sure. I think the biggest risk is that um, customers stop buying the product. You know, that's effectively what drives everything in retail, the top line revenue. Um, I think that um, uh, that's uh, driven by a lot of external factors. And I think that, um, uh, you know, the, the current international restrictions really will help the company going along. I think if international travel was to suddenly open, then that would actually uh, be you know, a bit of a handbrake on the company's aspirations. And why I say international travel in particular is that what we have observed is that a lot of people who have been budgeting for, you know, big you know, holidays of a lifetime suddenly have all this disposable income at their, you know, within mm. their hands. And, um, you know, people still want to enjoy their lives. They don't want to, you know, um, just stay at home and do nothing. They want to go out, have a healthy dose of retail therapy, as we're finding, you know, from, from all the companies that are reporting out of the, the sector itself. And, um, so we think that uh, particular dynamic will be quite aligned with uh, uh, the retail industry locally going forward. So, um, yeah, I, but otherwise, you know, in terms of supply chain, in terms of the store rollout, I think these are all things that the company has very well under control and have managed very well in the past. So I think the, the big hairy risk is, is the risk of um, you know, revenue falling at some point in the future. Um, yeah, most prominently because of this international um, travel restriction opening up, if it does, or when it does, I should say. 
Beautiful. Well, fingers crossed that doesn't happen for uh, for all the dust shareholders. But uh, mate, really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. You, you paint a, a really clear picture, so uh, appreciate your time. No worries, Chris. Anytime. Thanks, Manuel. Cheers. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.